Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. An Erio's original. Each week, we decide who's to blame for a historical tragedy. And each week, you tell us if we got it right. My name is Rebecca Delgado-Smith, and this is The Aftermath. Hey, everyone. Thanks for tuning into this episode of The Aftermath. Today, we're speaking with guest expert Rick Poulos. Rick is a scholar, artist, playwright, theater producer, performer, and educator. He's currently a doctoral student at Texas A&M. In 2021, he published the article, Pepsi-Cola's Number Fever Fiasco, How the Media Portrays the Actors of a Crisis. Let's hear what he has to say about Pepsi Number Fever. Hi, Rick. Thank you so much for joining us today. Hi, Rebecca. Thank you for having me. (laughs) So could you start off by giving us a little background on your field of study and how you became interested in the Pepsi number fever fiasco? Okay, so I started a PhD program in 2019, in the fall of 2019. And um, so I'm continuing down that path right now. I'm at Texas A&M University. But I was in a different PhD program in 2019. I transferred to Texas A&M. And I got one of those Facebook feeds. I don't know if you've ever gotten these. They say, remember when? And so that came up on my Facebook feed. And I was like, remember when what? What is this number <laughs> fever thing? What is this fiasco? What are they talking about? I mean, I was alive in the, in the early 90s. I was a teenager, but I 
don't remember this story at all. So I clicked on the link (laughs) and I read a little bit about number fever. And I was like, this is fascinating. This is intriguing because, you know, as your viewers know already, it touched every aspect of Filipino life um, from government uh, to um, to corporate corporations like Pepsi Cola. So it was just a fascinating topic that I then started researching um, in the fall of 2019. So what were the cola wars? And what is the history of cola in the Philippines? That is a fantastic question. So the um, the cola wars were a general war that happened between Coca-Cola and Pepsi. And it not only happened in the Philippines, but also happened um, in the United States. Mm. And um, it really amped up in the 80s. But contextually in the Philippines, just to... to give you a little history of uh, carbonated drinks on the island nation, you had uh, Coca-Cola was there, I think at the late 1800s. So they were already on the island, but it didn't really pick up. And it wasn't until 1946, um, right after World War II, a Midwesterner um, uh, army guy in the United States brought over Pepsi. Mm. with him. And that sort of started, opened up the uh, market for Pepsi. And eventually what happened, it's very fascinating, Pepsi dominated, dominated the Filipino market. By the uh, late 70s, early 80s, they had the majority share of the market. And um, then what happened was Coca-Cola came in and aggressively aggressively kind of fought for a market share. And that was a that was at the beginning of the 80s. And I, I just want to read a quote from a great book. And everyone should check out this book. It's fantastic by Tristan Donovan. It's called Fizz, How Soda Shook Up the World. And this is what he writes in his book. The battle was fierce. In the Philippines, one of the world's biggest consumers of carbonated drinks, Pepsi and Coke fought a war of attrition across the island nation. Dirty tactics followed, too, with both companies hoarding each other's returnable bottles, filling fields with their enemies' glassware in the hope of forcing them to invest in new containers rather than more advertising. And so at the end of the 80s, the tables had turned and Pepsi was not the dominant um, uh, share, did not have the dominant share of the market at that point. So at the start of the 90s, when number fever comes into play, you have kind of Pepsi is sort of desperate to get back their market share. So what was Pepsi number fever? Um, What was the contest? And how invested in it were Filipinos? So I think, you know, it was a very simple marketing gimmick, and I am going to call it a gimmick because it it really um, is. So what they did was they they put underneath the bottle caps what the Filipinos call crowns, um, the bottle crowns. They had a number, and so it's sort of like a lottery. And each week uh, they would announce a winning number through the media, usually on the six, six o'clock news, um, and then the next day in all of the newspapers and sometimes on the radio as well. And it was a very simple game. If you had the winning number, 
you won a million pesos. Now, a million pesos it contextually made you a millionaire in the Philippines, but it wasn't like a million dollars in American dollars. The, the exchange is not the same, but it was a lot of money to Filipino people because at the time they were co- going through economic woes. They're, they were just coming out of the Imelda, uh, I mean, the um, Marcos regime. Um, and we all remember Imelda Marcos, who spent lavishly, had, you know, rooms full of shoes. And so, but they were coming into this transition period where a lot of people were out of work and just the prospects for a good life were bad. So this was a lot of money to most of the people living in the Philippines at that time. And that was basically the game. You know, and people played and it worked for Pepsi. They eked in and started digging away at Coke's share of the market during the promotion, so much so that they extended the promotion out. It wasn't supposed to last as long as it was, but it was a super success for the Pepsi Cola company. And how did the contest go wrong? Or the gimmick? (laughs) (laughs) I mean, this, I think this is the piece of the story that Pepsi didn't really own up to. So they blamed the wrong number being called, which was 349. That was the number that they called, which actually has become a part of the language and culture of the Philippines. They will say, if if you've ever been duped, you can say I've been 349. It actually became a part of the language. (laughs) I love that. But um, so Pepsi said that it was a computer glitch. They used a computer glitch narrative that the wrong number um, was generated. Now, this wasn't the first time that Pepsi had this problem with this game. See, this number fevers actually had been very successful for Pepsi in Latin America. And just a month ahead of May 1992, when they announced the wrong number in the Philippines, they had a similar problem in Chile. In fact, they blamed that not on a computer glitch, but they blamed it on a fax that was hard to read. Wow. <laughs> I mean, if you re- if you all remember faxes, I guess we still sort of use them. But yeah, <laughs> I guess the printout was hard to read and the person that read the uh, number read it wrong. And so that also led to a similar situation, which was just a month before. So you would think that they just had this happen in another country, they, they would be like really on it in the Philippines. But something went awry and they realized quite quickly that it was a, a mistake. And um, they, they got really nervous um, at, between the announcement on the six o'clock news and like 10 o'clock at night. They were already strategizing on what to do. How do we fix this? What can we say? Um, so that was that was the situation with that for for Pepsi um, and also for the people of the Philippines who, in the middle of the night, they retracted that number and issued a new winning number, and that really upset people, really angered people. So yeah, what was the reaction from the public? I guess for the ne- the following weeks and months. 
Yeah, I so so there were a bunch of people that came out and kind of voiced their opinions um, through the media about sort of what happened. And so you kind of have all these different players coming into this crisis and um, speaking out, speaking out about the issues, speaking to each other, speaking against each other. Um, and so you had Pepsi, who kind of, you know, came out and sort of denied that they did anything wrong. Oh, it was just a mistake. We made a boo-boo, <laughs> which was one of the narratives in um, the newspapers. Then you had sort of the Filipino people who, you know, they, they came down with their crowns. And the thing is, is just a reminder that a lot of them not only didn't just have one, one 349 bottle cap, some of them had like 10, wow. you know, so they had like, they were like looking at being millionaires multiple times over. So a lot of them started showing up the next day at the Pepsi bottling plants demanding their money. And of course, this got really ugly fast. Uh, and people came out and, you know, there were sort of human interest angles in the newspapers, you know, because th what happened was people like thought this is life changing. You know, I'm going to be a million. I'm going to be able to send my kids to college. I'm going to be able to buy a house. I'm going to be comfortable. I'm going to go on vacation. Like all of these hopes and dreams happened between the announcement on the news and the next morning they were dashed. You know, it was obviously going to be a situation where people were very emotional and um, angry. And so that's what really happened with the public. And then the government had to get involved. And that was a whole nother level um, where the government came in and um, started holding hearings, um, started talking more about consumer protection, you know, um, talking about rules uh, for doing some sort of marketing um, schemes that, that that Pepsi was using, like, you know, because they wanted, they, it had to be on the up and up. And part of the problem for the government was that Pepsi sort of changed the rules in the middle of the night. And that wasn't right. So they, they, they changed the number. They issued a new number, retracted the old number, but they also argued that 349 didn't count anyways because there was also a 10-digit code. I think it was 10 digits that was underneath 349 that was supposed... So the, the winning number was supposed to be that winning number if it was 349, and then also the code has had to match. But on all of their um, their promotion for and rules for number fever, they never mentioned that code. And the government thought it was a little sneaky that they were now using it, um, even though in all of the published uh, information about the winning the prize and how it worked, they never mentioned that. So the government really came in and sort of, you know, tore into Pepsi, Pepsi responded by taking out a full page advertisement, denouncing the Senate hearings as terrorism, <laughs> as wow. um, anarchy. I mean, and it really upset the politicians, especially Senator Arroyo, 
who eventually became the president of the Philippines. I think she uh, was president from like 2001 to 2011. But at this time, she was a senator. And she was just like, you know, look, if Pepsi, <laughs> you know, wanted to like attack what was in the report and, and contradict what was in the port, I would be fine with that. But basically to tell us we were setting up this situation as an act of, almost as an act of terrorism, she's like, I couldn't stand it. So that was sort of all the voices that came, you know, and then you had the activists. There were, there were also the activists that came out and started like, uh, you know, tr- uh, talking to the government about protecting consumers, demanding that Pepsi pay up. But it was too much money. Pepsi was never going to pay up that. There was too many. It was like 800,000 people had these um, $1 million paces. It was like billions and billions of dollars. So that was kind of what happened in the media and the newspaper and the newspapers and on, on the evening news, how people came in and talked about this situation. Now, in your article, you write about crisis communication. Yes. What, is, what is crisis communication and how did uh, Pepsi use this theory or method uh, during the, the fiasco? Well, so crisis communication is a, a subfield of the discipline of communication, um, which is my area. And crisis communication really, the original paradigm was that you would look at an organization in crisis. Um, and the thing about crisis, actually, two of the preeminent scholars of crisis communication are faculty members at Texas A&M, where I'm at, and they put out uh, the crisis communication handbook. They're Professor Coombs and Professor Holiday, And what they say about crisis is say part of the interest comes from the fact that crisis is dramatic. It's newsworthy. That's what they say. So it's sort of the study about what an organization would do. Now that's kind of the traditional paradigm. And I'll give you an example. Um, One of the um, original kind of inspirations for the subdiscipline or subfield of crisis communication with the Tylenol murders in uh, the 1980s, 1982, you had um, a a young girl at first, uh, Mary Kellerman, she was 12 year old, got sick after taking Tylenol and then she eventually died. Eventually seven people died from the poisoning. Um, Somebody had tampered with Tylenol and put potassium cyanide in it. And the owners and producers of Tylenol, Johnson & Johnson, kind of had this very um, classic response. And actually it's it's a response by an organization that I think a lot of companies still look to because it really worked. And so there were sort of these five steps that they took Johnson and Johnson. First, they were forthcoming and honest. So when they found about out about it, they came out and they said, yep, this is happening. No doubt. Um, you know, and then they acted quickly and decisively, uh, they pulled Tylenol they tried to strategize on what they could do to protect um, to protect their customers and protect protect the public. They also took responsibility immediately. That was one thing. They really didn't do anything wrong. I mean, if you, somebody did something, but the pressure went on to Johnson and Johnson, and they're just say, "Yep, we we are going to take care of this." They didn't deny anything. They didn't go through any of that process. They really just took ownership of the problem. And then they treated people with respect. And the final thing that uh, 
that Johnson and Johnson did in terms of the way that they communicated with the public is that they they were they they showed good corporate behavior right so and they realized that this will pay in dividends later um they did probably didn't know at the time they just knew it was the right thing to do mm. in the way that they responded and you know out of that situation you know Tylenol changed uh, Johnson and Johnson changed their manufacturing process for um, bottling their medications so you know things like the tamper resistant top that we're used to these days, they didn't exist before this situation. Huh. So they really took action, right? So that was one of the, in terms of crisis communication was one of the classic examples. And then later in the late 1980s, there was a whole different situation. And that was the Exxon Valdez um, running aground in Alaska. And that was sort of a different situation with a company in crisis. And it was handled differently too. But one of the things about that is that it, 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 like number fever, it extended to all levels of society in America and even globally, because you had, it, you know, you had the government at the time, which is the first Bush pres- presidency. They were like, they wanted to go into Alaska and tap into the natural resources. They wanted to drill and do all sorts of things. And when the Exxon Valdez happened, that stopped. You know, the public was angry. They they weren't happy about this situation. And at the same time, you have news cycles that were 24 hours. You had Mm. CNN. And this was like, it seemed like when I was, I was, uh, what, 14 when this happened. And I just remember it was in the newspaper, on the news, all the time, all the time. And the weird thing that Exxon did that was very different from Johnson & Johnson in terms of the way they handled the crisis was that they didn't really take ownership of it. They sort of said, well, we have this ship and we have to investigate to see what was going on with the captain before we mm. do it. And that was not, people didn't really like that. That was kind of like a weird way to deal with the situation. And, you know, if you, if you were alive during that time, you'll recall that it was kind of like this back and forth and, you know, even things like why would we need to know that that you didn't own the ship that somebody else owned the ship that they were just taking your cargo right. like those sort of arguments um, don't really play well to the public right. so which is so, similar to the Pepsi uh, how Pepsi responded sure yeah definitely yeah. so yeah we we ask all of our guest experts this question um, at the end of the day. If you had to pick a person or a thing, it could be a concept that you think is to blame for the Pepsi number fever fiasco in the Philippines. Who or what would that be? I have to blame Pepsi. I have to blame the way that they responded to this. Um, You know, I think that there were a couple of things that they did right and a couple of things that they did wrong, you know, and in the media, they were sort of portrayed as, um, you know, as kind of just making a mistake. And then they were also demonized, you know, for uh, for everything that they did to the people. Um, but they also were portrayed as kind of like, you know, kind of nice. Oh, well, they're going to give people $18 for each crown that they have. So that's something, the consolation prize. But I, I think that... Um, 
they 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 became they came into this ugly fight this ugly fight against the activists against the government and you know there was a lot of pointing fingers um you know uh, not taking responsibility immediately i mean they did apologize and they offered that money to a lot of people who took that money but i think that because because they you know like that one page ad that they took out against the government i mean it's just it just reeks of like you know uh, mudslinging and so i think that that was not the right thing for pepsi to do so that's who i would blame in the center of all this well rick thank you so much for talking to us today about this um lesser known and uh incredible fiasco <laughs> it it was it, it is an incredible story to learn about and you know i mean in the end you have to really remember that there were people that thought their lives had changed that night and you know for the better and that's a really hard position for somebody to be in that one day you know you're struggling to feed your family and then the next day you think that you're going to wake up and be able to do everything you ever dreamed of and so we have to remember that in the center of this i think you have the filipino people that were really really um hurt by this but they were also a very forgiving group too there were a lot of filipinos that forgave pepsi for what they did wow well again thanks for coming on the show and talking to us this is paige the co-host of giggly squad and i want to tell you about a company that i've been loving olive and june olive and june gives you everything that you need for a salon quality manicure in one box and if you break it down it really comes out to two dollars a manicure which is absolutely insane it's also so easy to get salon worthy nails at home with olive and june the difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the manny system is a complete game changer the best thing about olive and june too is it's a quick dry dries in about one minute lasts for five days and full coverage in up to one to two coats visit oliveandjune.com slash perfect manny 20 for 20 percent off your first system that's oliveandjune.com slash perfect manny 20 for 20 percent off your first system how would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. 
In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. With us today, we have producer Clayton Early. Hello. And fact checker Chris Smith. Hi. Um, what, what, Rebecca? <laughs> Yeah, go ahead. She doesn't know where to start. Oh, just, there's a lot. You know what I was thinking? It was like, it's just so incredible to me that we didn't know about this. Like, I know. I know. Uh, how are we now, especially as comedians, how is some, this like not something we reference all the time? And like the 349. We got 349. We got 349. And yeah. I'm going to use that from now on. Well, it makes me think of, uh, you know, they added catfish to the dictionary back when... Uh, those guys oh, right. made catfish. Yeah. Um, and it's like 349. It's just now it's part of the culture. It was such a significant moment mm-hmm. in that part of the world that it became a part of the culture. I thought that was fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. We. I mean, go on clean. I, I mean, I, part of me is like, was that a conscious effort on Pepsi's part to kind of keep it hush-hush because it's bad publicity? Or was there something else going on that we were so distracted by that this just didn't make yeah, it's a, you know it's early news 24 hour cycle so maybe we just weren't as focused on it because it wasn't i don't know yeah maybe maybe i mean nowadays with twitter and our phones essentially like we're yes. always on the news we and would have heard about it yeah i guess you know we were kids when it happened yeah so <laughs> we were really like tapped into cnn or uh you know maybe watching the nightly news as much um but still i i'm as many of these tragedies, you know, we, we learn about them and I, I just can't believe we're not constantly talking about them because this one also feels like one of those that number one could have been prevented, obviously. Um, and e- even if it had happened, the mistake had happened, it could have been uh, dealt with in a manner yes. that wouldn't have created such a larger problem, right? So as one of those, I feel like it's it's one that we can learn from. You know, just like what he was talking about, like crisis yeah. communication. Like right. that is good on all levels. Like yes, in a huge corporate level, but like in a family situation. Like <laughs> Right? Yes. You know, uh just any anything. Own up. Yeah, take yeah, responsibility. At work. <laughs> yeah. I feel like, I mean, even just saying him saying that they had kind of changed the rules of the game overnight, it's like no one who plays a game is cool with that. No. Like that's bound to, that's bound to cause an argument amongst you and your circle of friends playing this game. I imagine, you know, Mm -hmm. and of course with the nation of people who are so invested. And I think he really made the point, which is like the ultimate point that these people really thought their lives were going to change playing this game and that they were going to, 
you know, the thought of being able to send your kid to college because you won some prize money and before right. you couldn't do that. Like that's, people are really invested. That's really yeah. personal. Upsetting. You know, and it reminds me of the time, Clayton, where we were playing Monopoly together and uh, <laughs> you were about to lose, but then you landed on Go and collected $500 and you said, that's the rule. And I said, well, you just totally made that up right in the middle of the game. You ended up winning that game actually. And so, you know, it makes me wonder, did you handle that crisis? That's a lie. <laughs> Clayton None would never happened. do that during Monopoly. First he of said, all, you um, can't collect five hundred dollars. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm a stickler for the rules. Exactly. You, I'm the one who's mad at people because I'm like, that's not the rule, and then the fight breaks out. This is why okay. Clayton and I get along okay. so well together. <laughs> you know, well, I remember that event happening much differently. Okay. Okay. Well. <laughs> I mean, what else? Uh, he, he, just talking about how they put out the ad. I'll, I'll tell you what stuck out to me also that yes. Rick mentioned, which was that how about this one army soldier coming <laughs> yeah. over in 1949, 1946 after uh, Coke had dominated the market and mm-hmm. just saying, hey, guys, check this out. And then boom, an explosion, a Pepsi explosion. <laughs> Cola wars. It's so weird. Right. Yeah. I, another thing that kind of I just had to wrap my mind around was the fact that Coke was around in the late 1800s. I know, <laughs> when right? he said that, I was like, he was said like, that what? incorrectly. Wait, 1800s. <laughs> Come on. Coke's not that old, but wow. It's yeah. really old. Um, so, and also the fact that the government had to get involved, like mm-hmm. how big, imagine, you know, it was just so big. Their government is like, you know, just, they took out that ad and, and, and the senators are like fighting about it. It's like, well, what is Well, it was like we happening? talked about, it came at like a really critical moment in the, yeah. in the country. And so it was sort of being used as, um, I don't know, like a cudgel on either side. But anyway, yeah. it was... Well, and- I feel like we uh, we talk about this more so nowadays because corporations I feel like loom so large in our lives but it seems like really I mean fair for a government to be like this you know this company is coming into our country and has such a big right. impact on the culture and was there was so much promise that yeah you maybe we should be regulating mm-hmm. how these companies are interacting with our people. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, we, we're, we're worried about that too. We're worried yes. about companies nowadays being ethical or, you know, taking Companies are out. basically their own dictatorships. I mean, their companies are corporations. They have, uh, I mean, you look at Apple. I mean, how much is Apple worth? It's like at least over like $100,000 at this point. Maybe even $200,000. <laughs> Um, and we're no, yeah, we talk about apples all the time. Yep. <laughs> no, but 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 it's just like you know you you do have to consider that these companies they they sway They're very powerful. Well, they sway right. the world in a way that countries do. Um, yeah. Right. You so. make a decision; it has an impact on the public, and you got to be, I guess, pretty. Uh, I would imagine now Pepsi has really learned their lesson and probably does kind of. I mean, who knows. It's to to be seen, but it seems like this whole crisis communication about immediately taking responsibility and being, you know, proactive about fixing the problem, like that's the right thing to do. And, mm-hmm. and Pepsi really just they really played dirty. Mm-hmm. They just denied and kind of, you know, didn't take any responsibility. And ultimately, that's going to upset. I mean, just listening to it, I'm like, that's not that's, that's we, not right. We talked about that. That's yeah. not right. <laughs> so we ended up sending uh, Pepsi, I believe. 
We gave the big finger wag to Pepsi. Oh. Oh. And we threw corporate shamelessness in jail, which is really like, you know, we really zeroed in on, I think, Pepsi's behavior is what we threw, you know, when it came down to what we wanted to throw in in jail. But it's all Pepsi related. Yeah. And I I think the reason that uh, that felt right to me was that it's not just Pepsi that's doing that across the board. So, you know, if you want to nip it in the bud, as they say, Mm -hmm. um, you got to kind of well, get to the root of why they're doing it, right? Well, yeah, you're mixing metaphors a bit because the bud creates the root over a long period of time. But you can't nip it in the bud. It's too late to nip it in the oh, bud. These I, corporations no, I mean have the future, been planted the and they've become big old forests. <laughs> so we nip do it in the forest. N- yeah. just, uh, I think cut we have down to the forest, burn down the forest. But that's actually yeah. bad for the environment. Yeah, we don't want to So we, we don't can't do that. that. We're well, stuck in a, between a rock and a hard place. <laughs> I love all these <laughs> phrases that we're throwing in here. What are other ones? <laughs> uh, I think that's all. We, we covered that's them all. That's all we got. Um, so w- do we want to change? Uh, do we want to send Pepsi to the alarmist jail? Or do we want to st- stick with the with the mentality behind Pepsi? I think, look... I think that just with the information, knowing that, you know, tell, Rick was telling us about the Tylenol murders that happened in the 80s and how I, Johnson & Johnson at that time did kind of deal with it in a manner that was, uh, I don't know, felt better to the public. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, so it didn't have to be this way. Um, and no. I think that is a part of corporate shamelessness. Um, yeah. But I also think that, Pepsi as a corporation supported that and 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 that that was the culture there. So what do we do here? I mean, you could we could swap it. We could give corporate shamelessness the finger wag and we could throw Pepsi in mm. jail if you want to if you really want to punish Pepsi. Okay. But uh, here's I also thing. feel fine keeping it the same cuz I feel like they're one mm. or the other. Yeah. Yeah, I do feel like if we put Pepsi in jail. Yeah that we could task them with providing their ice-cold Pepsi beverages for the rest of the prisoners gratis. We make them do it for free. Mm. What do you think about that? So you're you're thinking about personal gain right now. Well, I'm just trying to leverage this situation to help us personally. Yes, okay, yeah, so about- you as a, uh, as, as a member of the Alarmist are using your corporate shamelessness in order to Get Pepsi. Well, have you looked? Have you looked at how much we spend on soda at our <laughs> no, at our okay. facility? I'm not going. It's a there. lot of money. <laughs> I'm not going. <laughs> okay, okay. So I think we should uh, let's just keep it as is, just because I feel like just understand that when when he, when we say corporate shamelessness, we're talking about Pepsi in this scenario. Yes. yes. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. Well, I mean, before we go, I want to talk about just rating, reviewing, and subscribing to the show. Now, I feel like we haven't had any recent reviews, and that really kind of hurts us. Hurts my feelings. Uh, it hurts mm. Chris's feelings, and it hurts just our, um, you know, our, I don't know how Apple podcasts work. I, I don't know how they come up with their system of like, who's listening to what and what pops up when, but it definitely doesn't help us. And so if, if you love the show and you want us to continue uh, making new episodes uh, and you haven't already subscribed or rated and reviewed, please do so now. Uh, Clayton, what is our latest uh, review, which hasn't I, been for I a have, while? Yes, I have one here from Zeta. 
Momo F5. Okay. Uh, new listener. I'm a fairly new listener. I listened to a few episodes and decided to go back to the beginning and I've been binge listening. I love to see how you've evolved. I mm. especially love the moment when you developed the big slap. <laughs> I have aspirations to be a secondary history teacher, and I've decided I'd love to integrate the alarmist style into my teaching. Aww. Thanks for the inspiration. Oh, I love that. Mm-hmm. That's um, awesome. And I love to hear that we have new listeners who are catching up. Um, so thanks again to everyone who's listening and catching up. Uh, and stay tuned because next week we're going to be talking about the Johnston, Pennsylvania flood. Erios. Powered by ACAST. 